All right. Hi, everyone. You're listening in to What's Going On, a podcast where we have important, relevant, and sometimes difficult conversations so that you can start your own. Today, we're going to talk about climate change. While this issue affects all of us, regardless of where we are on the globe, the pain from witnessing and experiencing the destruction on this land that is now known as the United States of America is all the more compounded by the fact that their land was and still is stolen from them. What's going on is by Suffolk University's Center for Student Diversity and Inclusion in Boston, Massachusetts. Hence, we would like to honor the Mashapi Wapanoak, Akina Wapanoak, Nipmuc, and Massachusetts tribal nations whom this land originally belonged. It is imperative to acknowledge the Massachusetts tribe who historically lived in areas that make up present-day Greater Boston. It is also critical that we respect and realize their importance in the preservation of the environment that we directly benefit from. Since 80% of the world's biodiversity is protected by indigenous folks who now make up only 5% of the world's population. We honor the diverse tribes, people, and respect the connection to this land. To know more about the land you are on and ways you can support the indigenous community, please visit www.native-land.ca and for those of us in Massachusetts, um, please visit www.maindigenousagenda.org. And so with that, um, we'll welcome our guest speaker for today's episode, Hassan Faruqi, who is um, Boston U- University's pre-law economics major and also the volunteer for Ed Markey's 2020 primary campaign. Welcome, Hassan. Hey, Shinyi. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Would you like to um, introduce yourself and your pronouns um, and may- maybe something else that you want to add? Sure. Yeah. Well, my name is Hassan. I'm a junior at Boston University studying economics and my pronouns are he, his. And I am a big fan of making sure we have a livable future, as I think we all should be. For real, for real. So uh, let's start with talking about the impacts of climate change right now. There's um, wildfires on the West Coast and hurricanes in the American South. And you yourself are um, in Colorado right now, right? Right. Um, So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing. Right. So wildfires are only going to get more intense and more frequent because of climate change. And we're seeing that right here in Colorado, right in the state I live in. Just uh, back in August, we had wildfires that were so bad, I could not go outside because of all the smoke that was in the air. And right now, we still have the largest wildfire in the history of the state that's burning just north of where I am. So this is not an abstract issue. It continues to tear down communities and more importantly, continues to hurt people and in some cases take people's lives. So it's a big, big deal and it's happening now. Yeah, and um, I think for people who don't really understand climate change, when they see the news about wildfires and the hurricanes, a lot of them would be saying things like, well, it has always been happening. You know, it's just the seasons. It, it may, may have gotten worse, but it doesn't mean that the climate is changing. And so do you know of any signs or in general, what are your opinions um, to back up that there is actually such a thing as climate change and it's harming um, us and the environment? Mm -hmm. Well, sure. I mean, those people are hitting on something true, which is that, yeah, we've always had wildfires. We've always had hurricanes. The thing with climate change is that they get more frequent and especially more intense. So the way that works, of course, let's think about what climate change actually is. You have, since the Industrial Revolution, a whole bunch more greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide that's going into the atmosphere. And if you've ever been inside an actual greenhouse, you know it's really warm in there because all the sun's rays go in and then the heat gets trapped inside. So when we have a bunch of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it's doing that same thing, except that greenhouse is our entire planet. So we have a greenhouse effect that causes global average temperatures to rise. And, you know, the actual changes might be, you know, fractions of a degree Celsius. And so you might think, oh, whatever, you know, the temperature fluctuates 10, 20, 30 degrees in one day. 
who cares about a fraction of a degree, but these are global average temperatures, and this is over time. So what that means is that when, especially here in the West, temperatures rise, the air gets hotter, and it's already pretty dry to begin with. So hot, dry air becomes like a sponge, and it soaks up all of this moisture from the air, from plants, and that means everything becomes even more dry. And anything that's dry is perfect for a fire to start, right? These brush fires start because all, there's all this dry, decaying plants, maybe dead trees. That's much more likely to catch on fire. And that is how these fires start more frequently and then burn for longer as well. And that is a huge issue that's exacerbated by climate change. And it's made even worse by the fact that now we're building homes in a lot of these forest areas. So the closer we live to the areas that are going to burn, obviously, the more people are going to be in harm's way, the more property is going to be destroyed. And unfortunately, the more people could get injured or could get hurt. And so it's also the same trend with hurricanes, as you mentioned. Now, it's a little bit different because hurricanes happen more in this country, at least in the south. And it's a very different climate. It's more humid. It's uh, warmer. But the same global average temperature rise plays a part. These, the global average temperature rise also raises ocean temperatures. And warm water is perfect for hurricanes. So the more warm water you have, the more hurricanes are going to start. But more importantly, the hurricanes are going to get more intense. And then there's all these overlapping issues. So sea levels rise too, right? When the ocean water uh, gets warmer, it swells. So it expands. That means the, the ocean level rises paired with ice caps that are melting. They're melting into the ocean. So obviously that's going to raise the ocean temperature. I'm sorry, the sea levels as well. That means when we have hurricanes, they're going to have even worse flooding because the, the sea level is higher to begin with. So it's going to go further inland, going to cause more property damage. And especially when, just like with the forest, people are living more now in low-lying coastal cities, which are seeing much higher population growth. That's when you're really going to have not only more intense storms, but more damage that's done as a result of those storms. For sure. Um, I mean, I'm a huge fan. I'm not sure if anybody else out here this, um, watches that, but I'm a huge fan of um, beach hunters and mm. people always glorify, right? Not just living in a city anymore, but living near the beach, building seawalls, um, mm -hmm. thinking that protecting us and leaving the place that we like will not affect the ocean and will not in turn, of course, affect ourselves. So when you talk about um, you mentioned like industrial revolution, greenhouse, and also building homes within areas that are already potentially risky for wildfires. Um, so let's talk about corporations. Yeah. What do you think they, the what do you think is the role that they play within um, climate change? Oh, it's huge. I mean, a hundred corporations are responsible for seventy percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, 70%. And especially corporations like ExxonMobil, fossil fuel companies, they knew the science for decades, since the 80s. And instead of mobilizing to invest in renewable energy, they covered up the science and they continued to pollute our air and pollute our water. And that has caused real harm and it's only going to get worse and worse. So you bet the corporations are right at the heart of this and we need to hold them accountable if we're going to deal with this crisis. Because there's so often this narrative that, you know, our own individual actions will solve this whole crisis, that you know, we should turn off the lights, that we should drive cars less. And yes, all of that's good. You know, if you take a shorter shower, that's going to help. Fantastic. But we can't pretend like that's going to solve the whole problem in and of itself. We need to hold corporations accountable. And that means changing the structures and the systems that have allowed them to pollute basically for free for so many decades. And without that, we can't solve this crisis. Yeah, I think it's interesting, definitely, when we talk about the past few years where we have um, the term personal carbon footprint. Mm 
Right. Uh, reuse, reuse, recycle, and that's the last R. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Yes, reduce, reuse, and recycle. And it all relies a lot on the individual consumption, right? And indiv individual's responsibility in um, essentially saving the planet. And you make a really big claim there that um, big oil and gas companies actually know the science and know what they're doing and they're doing it regardless. So um, what do you think is happening actually in the way of why would corporations knowing the science and knowing the power that they have um, rather than helping to save the climate what makes it what do you think or why do you think is the reason for them to continue doing what they're doing and push the responsibility to the consumers well because we let them you know any economy is just like a thing that exists because of rules that we set in place. Economies are not natural phenomena. They're things that we create. So when we create an economy that puts in rules that say they can pollute our air, pollute our water, they're not going to pay any price. In fact, we're actually going to subsidize them and they don't have to worry about the harm that that's causing our communities, especially black and brown communities, low income communities. Well, obviously they're gonna do that. And so right now their whole incentive is just make as much money as possible because of rules that we all created through how we run our government. And those rules mean they should continue to double down on what's working for them right now in their short-term mindset that's driven by the quarterly earnings that they have to report to their shareholders. And they don't have any incentive to actually invest in the next generation of renewable energy but of course you know these corporations are run by smart people so they they can kind of see which way the wind is blowing and so when there is this reckoning among all of us as people that hey the climate climate's changing and uh we got a part in that and we should really do something about that then they do what's called greenwashing where they try to make themselves seem like they're cool and you know investing in renewable energy and that they're they're so eco-friendly but a lot of that also translates to them saying you the consumer you the individual are the person responsible for this you can turn off your lights you can drive your car less you can you know go down the line and all those things are great it's not saying that you know, you should keep the lights on all the time. It's saying that by pointing in the direction of someone else, by, by saying, oh, look over there, that means we as people don't look at them. And that's exactly what they want because it means they can continue to pollute unencumbered and we all have to pay the price. I almost feel insulted by that. I mean, so mm -hmm. I took care of my baby nephew um, when I was back in Singapore and that's what we do with babies right when they cry or when they want something we'll be like hey look at that and like divert their attention mm -hmm. somewhere else um, and so it's it's kind of astounding and almost I believe listeners um, who are tuning into this almost offensive like are you trying to say that we are babies that's what they were doing. They were, you know, putting the pacifier in the baby's mouth. The baby was us. And the pacifier was all of these campaigns about individual responsibility. And it's not just the fossil fuel companies. It's a lot of different companies like Coca-Cola, right? Produces so many tons and tons of plastic bottles and aluminum cans. And all of those are single use, right? We get rid of our bottle of Coke, throw it away or recycle it, but that's it. And that means there's a whole lot more plastic pollution. But what did they all say? And this is, you know, starting decades ago, not new. They said, oh, well, you should recycle it. You should, you know, pick up litter. And again, not saying that's a bad idea, but who is the person actually producing all of this plastic waste? Who made the decision to create single use containers instead of containers that are reusable? It's corporations like Coca-Cola. So. You're absolutely right. And it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, that's the way it is, but yeah, they're pacifying the baby. I know. And it's definitely a 
I would say a humbling thought, you know, that we we are kind of being almost dictated by big corporations because we trust them to know what they're doing, right? Because they're so big and they have so much power. And Coca-Cola is particularly insidious because I'm not sure, probably the younger generations, they haven't seen that before, but Coca-Cola used to use glass and they will actually incentivize consumers if you return your glass bottles back to the stores, they will incentivize you like 50 cents and those glass bottles actually go back to the factories, cleaned up and um, new, new Coke goes in there. So um, the, the decision for them to kind of move from glass to plastic is definitely intentional. At the same time, I have heard um, so many different opinions about this and I think partly what's at least for me, disheartening in a way is that consumers ourselves, some of us actually believe that it's our responsibility mm-hmm. to um, recycle. It's our, it's our responsibility to be sustainable and not the corporations. And um, the, ph- the phenomenon kind of like makes it a lot harder for people like yourself, you know, to advocate for um, sustainable change amongst bigger powerhouses in that way with corporations. And so let's talk about um, government. You mentioned subsidy, you mentioned several um, measures and controls that the government does to both aid and also for the most part right now, um, obstruct um, the effort to slow down and eventually stop climate change. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so talk to me and the listeners a little bit about about the government's role. Right. Well, who is it that makes the rules of the economy? It's the government. And who is it that changes the way that structures work, those structures that corporations operate under? It's the government. And the government is us. That's all of us in the ways that we can make a difference. So, of course, by voting, by volunteering on campaigns, by maybe running for office ourselves at all different levels we can shape the direction of the government and the government shapes the way that these actors, be it corporations of all different kinds or others, actually play a role in our climate. And it's unfortunate because, you know, government can sometimes be inefficient. And a lot of people who are really concerned about this really urgent pressing issue say, wow, we got to use the government to solve that? But yes, we do. Even just think about the way that our electricity is generated and produced. That happens at power plants, which are run in part by city and municipality governments. So if we want to change those power grids from fossil fuels to renewable energies, we got to pay attention to what's happening in our city governments and in our municipality governments. And so it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but this is a huge part of the picture. Now, it doesn't mean the government's going to solve everything, but government is the foundation. And just like when you're building a building, you got to have a strong foundation. And a foundation itself is not a building, but if you have a weak foundation, you're not going to be able to build much of anything on top of that. That's a good point. And to also remember, right, that um, America is highly... Um, proud almost of its capitalist nature Mm -hmm. and at the same time what we have talked about so far right like consumerism and corporations and government um, Mm -hmm. have also a part to play in that Mm -hmm. and so what is um, let's start with what is your own view towards um, capitalism do you think it has a role in obstructing climate change or do you think that the American government currently is not um, fulfilling a capitalist government and hence that's why it's going wrong like where basically do you think it's going wrong mm-hmm. well like i said capitalism is just about the economy right the economy is defined by what rules we set in place so so often we have this discussion about you know should we have capitalism or should we have socialism i think that's the wrong discussion the question is who makes the rules and who do the rules work for right now we have Sure, a free market, but 
We put in some rules in place that say, for instance, you can't have children working all the time. If you want to get a job, there's a minimum wage that we say that you can't pay people less than that. And all those rules just change the way the market works. And those make sure that people are safe and people are protected. Now, some other people have used this metaphor of a river. And I think it's good, right? That a river flows in one direction and one direction only. And that's what capitalism is, channeling human nature. Communism is trying to make the river flow the other way. Can't do that. But we also know rivers can flood. And when they flood, they can hurt people, can kill people, and they can damage property. So government can just come in, put some dams and locks on the river to make sure it keeps flowing in the right direction, but that it doesn't hurt anyone or damage any property. You can't ignore, as we just talked about, all the corporations. They have played a role undoubtedly in how the climate crisis has taken shape. And it's because of rules that we put in place that allowed them to do so. So if we can change those rules, but then also make a big investment on the side of the government in terms of what comes next, renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, go down the line, that's how we're going to solve this crisis. It's not either or, it's both. I'm guessing that all of these um, reasons and the metaphor of a river is part of the reason why you volunteered for the Ed Markey campaign. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Ed Markey, Senator Ed Markey of the state of Massachusetts, uh, was one of the co-authors of the Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal says exactly what I just said. It says we got to make sure not only do we put in place rules that prevent our corporations from polluting our air, polluting our water, but that also we make a big investment in what comes next. Because so often climate change is framed as this discussion of, you know, oh, we got to take something away or some sacrifice that we have to make in order to protect our climate. That's wrong. Go back to the original New Deal, right? It's the Great Depression, it's the 1930s, and we got a whole lot of problems. We have a recession where unemployment is at 25% at its highest. There's fascism rising in Europe, eventually in World War II. And there's so many problems that we got to address. And the New Deal was a whole set of changes, including things we've heard of, social security, unemployment insurance, that our government put in place to make sure that we protected our people, that we lifted up communities that needed help, and that we also dealt with the crises that we had at hand. Now, it left a lot of people out. Black Americans were excluded from a lot of the New Deal programs. But the idea of the government being a force for good, stepping in when there's an emergency, that's something we still have today, right? Think back in March, April, we passed a giant stimulus package when the coronavirus was really starting to get bad on bipartisan lines. And we did it not because we have some kind of you know, deep ideological views that all align with this. No, we said, look, this is an emergency. We've got to do something big and fast. We did the same thing in 2008, 2009, after the financial crisis. So we've done these big things to step in to prevent emergencies from getting worse. Because we know with crises, it's not like you can just ignore it and it's going to go away. I wish it were that simple, but you actually got to do something big and bold. The Green New Deal is doing that not just to avert the climate crisis, but in doing so, to lift up all the people who've lost jobs as a result of the coronavirus recession, as a result of manufacturing being sent overseas, as a result of automation, which is going to take a whole lot more jobs in the future, and to address the structural inequalities that we have in our system that perpetuates racial injustice, gender injustice, injustice for trans Americans, for queer Americans, for low income Americans, all of those problems we can solve while we are solving the existential threat of climate change. And that's what the Green New Deal does. And that's why I supported Ed Markey, who wrote that deal. Very impressive. I think um, with the Green New Deal, there have been so much um, misinformation, I would say that I remember 
recently the AOC actually take actually took her time to read the whole Green New Deal mm-hmm. during um the during during the meetings because people have been um spreading so much like false rumors about the Green New Deal. And mm-hmm. so it's um really refreshing and also re- really reassuring that you are um essentially giving definitely oversimplified but giving the audience a view of what the Green New Deal aspires to um, establish. And you mentioned um, several social injustices. Mm-hmm. So let's explore that a little bit to kind of give our audience an idea of um, how climate change is intersectional. Mm-hmm. So would you share with us a little bit about how um, particularly black, brown, and indigenous communities are impacted by climate change? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So start with how climate change actually starts, which is greenhouse gas emissions. Now, a lot of that is coming from those coal fire power plants and other ways that we burn fossil fuels. Now, if you've ever driven past one of those big coal fire power plants, right, the smokestacks, you know, the air's dirty. It's not a, a pretty sight. But worse yet, if you live in a community right around one of those power plants, you're in a way, way worse position because you're at a higher risk of upper respiratory conditions like asthma, like lung cancer. And especially when we have an upper respiratory pandemic going on right now, you especially do not want to have an underlying upper respiratory condition like asthma. But the people who live around those communities, this is not some accident as far as who lives there. They disproportionately tend to be low-income Americans and black and brown Americans. And it's no surprise because those are the people who in our system have the least political power, the least social power. And that changes how your community looks. When there's a power plant that's going to be built in your community, if you have less political power, less of a say in the zoning regulations and how it is that that happens in your community, obviously you're going to have less power to actually combat that. There's a reason that in wealthier areas, in areas that might be more white, we don't see a whole bunch of power plants cropping up all the time. It's because those residents have more power. So they're able to oppose the, the construction of things like power plants. And that's good. We need to make sure that we oppose the construction of new power plants, but we gotta make sure that that political power is shared by everyone and not just a small group of people. Oh, sure. Um, I was interning at a nonprofit, Big Green, over the summer. And um, so I was doing a little bit of research about climate change and social injustice. And I'm going to bring up the example of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where um, it was historically like the steel capital, right? Not just of America, but also the world. And um, right now it's being bought over, I think, um, basically it's now arranged by two big corporations that are still manufacturing um, not steel but similar manufacturing um, products and a lot of people who stay there are black and um, black folks because the um, when the industrial industrial revolution happened white folks who had generational wealth who um, benefit from the system were able to move to more gentrified areas mm-hmm. um, like um, the the, the capital of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Wait, is Philadelphia the state? I'm confused. No, no, Philly's a city. <laughs> yes, Philadelphia is a city. Yes, who we'll moved to Philadelphia. I'm sorry. You gotta forgive me as I'm still learning the geography of the states. It's, it's tough. 50 states is a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, so, to be able to, I think it's important for ourselves and also the audience to be able to draw that bridge, right? Draw the relationship between climate change and our identities. Mm-hmm. And also, um, other than black, white, indigenous folks, there are also a high level of um, LGBTQ plus um, folks, especially youth nowadays, depending mm-hmm. on the state, the homelessness rate of um, queer folks are between 11 to 40%. And so that's really high. And the only places that the homeless can go are shelters or places like Pittsburgh, you know, where rent is cheap and for reasons that we already, or rather you already explained. 
And so talking about that, right, um, and also Green New Deal, you mentioned that Green New Deal would uplift these communities. Do you have um, specific policies within the Green New Deal that can educate us about that would help uplift um, those communities of color? Of course. So those are what we call the frontline communities. And they are going to play a big, big part in how we're able to recover from these crises. Because like I mentioned, so often people in those communities have been drawn out of the political process. And that means they have less of a say in the decisions that governments make. And so part of the Green New Deal is making sure that we are investing in making sure those communities have things like education. Investments in education are huge because when you want a whole workforce of people to be trained in developing and installing the next generation of renewable energy technology, you bet we got to have education to do it. And right now we have those same communities, low income communities, black communities, brown communities who are excluded from the education system. We have this weird system in America where we fund education by property taxes. So if you have higher property value, obviously you're gonna be able to pay more into your school system and your kids will have better schools. But if you have for generations been excluded from building the same wealth as your white uh, friends and neighbors, obviously you're not going to be able to pay as much into the system, which means you're not going to be able to have as good of a school. And that just does not make any sense to me. This is a completely ridiculous system. And that is one of the things the Green New Deal will do. Because you mentioned generational wealth. This is huge. That rewinds, you know, a couple decades. The U.S. government subsidized the purchase of homes for white families, but not for black families. And that was called redlining. Now, if you're in a working class family or middle class family and you own a home, that home is the biggest accumulation of wealth in your family. And that wealth, you know, continues to pay dividends down the line. It means if you want to start a small business, you can borrow against that house. It means that you can pass that house and that property down to your children and your grandchildren who can continue to reap the benefits of it. And it also means that you have stability in your life. People who are constantly uh, experiencing homelessness, in some cases, uh, are not always on the street. But what happens is that they'll be in one place where they're renting, they get evicted, they move to another place, and then there's this constant cycle. And think about how much that just ruins your your day-to-day -day lived experience. If you're constantly worrying and actually being evicted from your home, that's gonna cause a lot of problems in your life. And if you own a home, that's not the case. So owning homes is critical. And we see the effects of that today when white families have way, way more wealth on average than black families. It means that going back to the schools, they're able to pay more into the school system. And the Green New Deal, among other things, you know, it's not just the Green New Deal, but we gotta do a whole lot more to make sure that we are uplifting these communities so we actually have what we call a just transition from the world that we're in now to the new world where we not only have a livable planet, but a livable planet that works for everyone, regardless of their race, regardless of their income, and regardless of their gender identity or their sexual orientation. Renudio seems to be um, aspiring to achieve more than just climate change, it sounds like, and that's great. Um, and you mentioned, right, that it doesn't make sense when you, when you talk about education being funded by property taxes, which um, when we still today, we still, especially in Boston, Massachusetts, where we still see the impacts of redlining, it doesn't make sense. And racism doesn't make sense. Right. Um, it, it's, it's just an illogical thing that we, um, bias that we, um, that we still have in society. And um, so, yeah, it shouldn't make sense. And you mentioned education and real estate. So um, again, I also want to want to bring out the fact that I think we should all reflect and look around us, right? So what we did, for example, um, recently, or actually last semester when COVID was, was not a thing, mm -hmm. um, we kind of drew out the map of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And you know how when you go to certain neighborhoods, you have certain 
impression of those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So I so we kind of did that like at the Center for Student Diversity and Inclusion at Suffolk University. We kind of did um, a similar activity, but more of like we 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 draw boundaries as as to in Massachusetts as to what demographics we see in different places, and you have obviously almost you can almost see the red lining effects mm-hmm. till today, and I think that's um pretty that's a pretty stark reminder that you know we still have a lot of work to be done and right. um it's not just in Massachusetts and so I urge our listeners everywhere um really look at the neighborhood that you're in and the neighborhoods that people deem high crime mm-hmm. um about what exactly that means mm-hmm. and so that's a that's a really great conversation um, but that's also a matter altogether, like separately from what we're talking about today, which is climate change. So back to politics, beyond just a Green New Deal. Um, as we know, election is near, mm-hmm. very near, less than two weeks. And for a multitude of reasons, including um, what the current administration has done or lack thereof, in the area of climate change, people are not having a lot of faith in voting procedure, like you said, right? One of the ways we can make our voice heard and change the way government runs is to vote. But people right now across different age groups do not really have that faith that voting works, do not have the faith that voting for any uh, particular party right now works. So what would be your a message to these folks, this audience? Yeah, well, look, I get it. You know, I used to be one of those people myself who was cynical about what government can actually do because it's easy to look at what's going on in Washington and, and to see all these people fighting and not getting things done and thinking, this is a pretty bad way to solve problems. But like I mentioned earlier, there's so much good that we can do with the government. And the government holds a lot of cards. There's so much that needs to happen through government. And that's why getting engaged in what's going on in our government in every way that you can is integral to solving the climate crisis. When it comes to this election, yeah, voting is looking a lot different, but early voting has already started in a number of states. So if that is the case where you live, get out there and make sure that you make your voice heard. And that might be through early in-person voting. It might also be through mail-in voting. And so if you're mailing in your ballot, especially if you're doing it for the first time, make sure that you're reading the directions carefully and that you're not making small mistakes like using the wrong color ink. That can sometimes invalidate your ballot, if you can believe that. So doing those small steps to make sure that your voice is heard in this election is going to go a long way, not only to electing people that we like, you know, this election, but also in solving the structural issues around how our democracy works, because we make it way too hard to vote in this country. And the way that we solve that is that we change laws, we change policies, and that happens when we vote. So it's, it's a cycle. And that cycle starts today in this election. And you may not be able to change everything with this one election. That's not ever going to be the case. But like I mentioned, voting and our political system is the foundation. And you've got to have a strong foundation if you want to build every, anything on top of it. So my advice to anyone who is anxious and feeling cynical about whether or not our government can even matter and whether or not it can actually do something good in our lives is you bet it can. I have seen this firsthand in the community that I live in, at least. When we turn on the tap, we've got clean water that we can drink. That is a decision that governments made. That is a choice that we all made. I get to drive on roads that are paved and bridges that are paved, and I have internet in my neighborhood. And those are decisions that government made problem that we have right now is that the government isn't working for everyone. And the way that we solve that in part is by voting. Now we got to do a whole lot of other things too. We got to organize, we got to protest, including people that we may vote for, because activism is a tool for accountability. 
and maybe we run for office ourselves. And not just, that doesn't just mean running for president, it means running for school board, running for city council. Those are really powerful tools to make a difference in your community. And every way that we can get engaged is going to help us to build the world and the government that works for all of us. I think those are very good points. You gotta remember that when we nominate a president, we don't just nominate a person, we nominate a Senate, Congress. And as we can see right now with what's happening in the Supreme Court, presidents also decide Supreme Court, which are lifetime um, appointments for those judges. And um, that's a very good tip. I actually never really thought about that either, that um, people can, um, people often think about I want to be a president of the United States. I want to be a, a senator. I want to be in Congress. But people really forget that the most important change happens on the ground in local governments and state governments, right? So um, that's definitely a very good tip. If anyone is interested, look up your school board, get involved, um, local community-based organizations. And um, a personal opinion question. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you already answered, but I just um, want to clarify in that way that so while climate change sounds like a isolated um, issue, we have actually proved the point, at least we hope, um, through the past um, about 40 minutes that everything is um, linked, right? Climate change with the government, with politics, with corporation, with business. And the systemic inequalities and inequities that we see, do you think, do you think by trying to um, push for, um, in the way of return of democracy in the government, that all these inequities would be resolved? And I asked, because there has been growing debates, especially within our generation, that yes, we are for democracy, but the government no longer works and it hasn't worked. And so why don't we just dismantle it rather than trying to reform it? Hmm. Well, like I said, it's, it's the foundation. We should not and cannot expect government to solve all of our problems, but it is, the foundation on which we can build. And if we don't have a government that works, we have a weak foundation. So when you talk about those reforms to our democracy, the way that our structures and systems work, you know, they seem like really nerdy, in the weeds, abstract issues, but they do matter because this comes down to who gets a voice, who gets a seat at the table and how our decisions are made. We talked about earlier, black communities, brown communities, low income communities, in a lot of cases, uh, people who are queer or trans, they do not get the same voice that everyone else does. And the way that we can solve that is by making sure we have structures and systems that give everyone a voice, that make sure that everyone can get to the polls and can cast their ballot, and that make sure that those ballots are actually counted, but also that make sure that people can participate in a whole lot of other ways. And one of the one of my favorite ones is land use institutions. The way that we decide where we build houses, where we build apartment buildings, that often happens through these town hall meetings or community meetings, where you have a board of people, you know, generally volunteers who can solicit feedback from the community. But who's actually showing up to those meetings? Well, if you're working at nights, uh, it's a lot harder for you to show up to those meetings, which happen at night. Those meetings can often stretch for hours and hours. So if you're working hourly, it's a whole lot harder for you to show up. And it's a whole lot harder for you to show up if you have young children or if you have other family members who you have to take care of. Already right there, it draws a lot of people out of the process of who gets a say. And this is particularly pernicious because the people who often show up to oppose housing developments that would bring down the price of rent tend to be older, wealthier people who own property. So they're not going to be at risk of becoming homeless or of having rent prices that are too high. But the people who are at risk, who might be experiencing homelessness, who might be working people, 
they have the highest barriers of entry to actually get into the system and make their voices heard. So all of these things that might seem so abstract and so in the weeds, they make a difference in our lives. That's why we've got to pay attention. That's why we got to get engaged. Points. Applause. <laughs> all right. So um, let's end off with talking about environmental justice something that's more like uplifting and something that what is your basically advice um, for all of us as individuals what can we do other than voting and being involved in our local communities what can we do as individuals to effect change and um, basically stop climate change oh you bet yeah so there's really two levels right there's the individual level and the structural level Individually, of course, we can do, you know, important individual actions in our lives. So the things we mentioned earlier, turning off the lights, using a reusable water bottle, which will keep a lot of plastic out of landfills, making sure that we're driving less, we're eating less meat, especially less beef, that can really reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and recycling. It's not a bad idea, especially glass. Glass is very easy to recycle and to reuse. So figuring out all the things that we can do to make our own lives more sustainable. Always a good idea, but that is not enough. And that's why we need to take structural and systemic action. Voting is obviously a great way to do that. And right when we're in the middle of an election, it's an important point that we got to mention right now, but we can also volunteer and organize and protest and those steps are important in holding our structures and our systems accountable. Sometimes that means organizing uh, or protesting the government at a lot of different levels. Sometimes that might mean protesting directly against corporations who are responsible for the destruction of our planet. But you mentioned in the question, this is uplifting. This is about not taking something away or fighting, it's about building the world that we all want to live in, building a world we all can be a part of, where people get a voice, people have power, and that people have a livable planet, not just for themselves, but for their kids and their grandkids and for generations and generations after them. And it's an inspiring process where we can build new systems that bring a lot of people along. You know, we talked about indigenous communities. Indigenous communities have already been doing such a good job for generations, taking care of our lands. So all of that knowledge is already there in these communities. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to uplift and empower the people who've already been doing this to lead on these issues. And I think there's, a, I, I think there's nothing more hopeful than fighting for the future that we want. So, to everyone listening out there, I get it. It's really anxiety inducing. It can be stressful, especially when climate disasters are happening right in your own backyard. It's easy to agonize, to throw your hands up and say, it's too late and I'm just one person. I can't do anything. But I don't think that's true. I think that all of us have so much more power than we know. And that can be political power. It can be economic power. It can also be social power, right? The conversations that we have with people around us, all of that has value. And we need to make sure that everyone can embrace their own power to build the planet that we all want. And that's gonna mean some changes, but all those changes are good. When we invest in renewable energy, we create countless good paying jobs that are gonna put food on the table for families. When we invest in making sure we have good land use and forest management, we are uplifting indigenous communities that have so often been drawn out of the process and left behind. And when we invest in making sure that everyone has clean water, clean air, that we bring down our utility bills, when we invest in making sure that people have healthcare and housing, that makes all of our lives better. And so maybe you're someone out there who says, look, I'm already good. You know, maybe I've already got a house. Maybe I already have good healthcare. Maybe I'm set and great. That's fantastic. But you're still affected by the economy. We see that in recessions, right? 
one group of people lose jobs and now they can't go and buy things at their local stores. So those stores do worse. Now those stores have to close. They fire people. Those people lose their jobs and over and over it snowballs. So we're all connected in the economy. And that means when we lift up the people who are the most vulnerable, when they can get jobs that put food on the table that they can then use to buy things in their local communities, that means that our whole economy grows and it grows in a way that brings everyone along. So don't agonize, organize, as we would say on the campaign. This is about a hopeful act of building the planet that works for all of us. Very well said. And I also want to add that it's okay to feel down and it's okay to feel demoralized. But give give that emotion some like a set number of time and then move on. Because we need you. Like all of us need you. Um, whoever you are out there. Just look around you if like Hassan mentioned, right? If um, your local town does not support recycling. Do something about it. Go to town halls, town councils, listen in, ask that question, right? Find out who's in charge of waste management in the town and ask them, why are we not recycling? What's the difficulties? What can I help? What can you help? And that's where change really starts. If we think about movements, if we think about um, greatest movements across history, not just in US history, but around the world, it starts from one person. And all we need is just a spark. So, um, topping off or piggybacking off um, Hassan's points and answers, it's normal right now to feel demoralized, but um, give that time and then move on. And we are always here. If you need us, um, please reach out. And thank you, Hassan, for coming. Thank you, Shinyu. It's, it's so great to talk with you and to talk with everyone in, in the audience. I really appreciate it. Thank you once again. What's going on um, by Suffolk University Center for Student Diversity and Inclusion and um, guest speaker Hassan Faruqi from Boston University. Thank you all for listening in. We'll see you next week um, on a different topic. Thank you.